do this. Yes, let's go. Amanda. Hi, Kayla. Yes, where we're going today. Where are we going? Well, we're going to one of America's most famous wanted hospitals that also served as a school. However, before we can get into this story, we need to go back and under in time and understand the way life was and how this whole disaster came to be. Okay, so the towns, they would make distinctions between people that were unable to work either because they were elderly or disabled and those that were poor yet still able to work. And that's how they distinguish them in these poor houses. Uh, those that were deemed able to work and did not work would be imprisoned. In imprisoned, yeah. like yes. there? Yeah, they'd be sent to jail. Like if they were, if you were able to work and you didn't work, you'd go to prison. Oh, yeah. okay. So then in the English colonies in America in 1660, the city of Boston actually started its first workhouse. It was a little brick building and it was created for quote, quote, dissolute, no, quote, quote, (laughs) (laughs) rewind. All right, ready? Dissolute and vagrant persons. What exactly does that mean? I believe it just means homeless people. Oh, okay. Um, So then towns were able to exile those that lived in poverty poverty entirely, hold on, or they would auction them off to the lowest bidder. Yeah. Oh, that got there. Okay. Let me follow that. And these are just people in poverty. Yes. And this people is who like, have no. Yeah. Yeah. Boston. Like this was the little English colonies in America. This was Boston. Yep. And they were auctioned off to the highest bidder, you said? Yep. Either they'd be completely exiled. Like, and I think exiled used to be a big thing. You know, like if your town exiled you, you weren't welcome there. You could talk to people there. Can't say with mm-hmm. that. <laughs> Can't sit with us. <laughs> or you'd be auctioned off to the lowest bidder. Not the highest bidder, the lowest The bidder. lowest bidder? Yeah, the lowest bidder. Okay, this is not making any sense to me. I know. And auctioned off for for what? Like, are they like now they're slave? Yeah. I don't. Yeah. And this, it was said that this was done during the research I found to let new poor residents know that the towns were unwilling to support them financially. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yes. I, I, I honestly had no idea. Wow. Yeah. And this is, when I was doing this research, I, it was pretty gruesome. Like it definitely surprised me. I did not know this was a way of life, you know? Yeah. So they had this vendue system put in place and vendue comes from the French word vendre, which means to sell. You said that very nicely, vendre. Yeah. <laughs> Rolled my R's. So this was, it sounds nice, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Well, the vendue system was put in place to auction the poor off to other individuals. Whoever purchased them would give them jobs to complete and work to do in exchange for whatever it costs to clothe and feed them. So, yeah, they were given clothing and fed, and for that, they had to work. Okay, so let me get this straight. They didn't want anybody in their town to be poor. They did not want to take of anybody who was poor. Mm-hmm. However. They sent them to work and they weren't getting paid for their work. Right. Just so they're yeah. still poor. Right. Right. So that's the way. Yeah. Like, how do you get out of that? It's like a cycle. Of yeah. Coffee. Absolutely. That. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I don't know how they 
I know they were thinking with that, but well, I think it was, how can we make this benefit us? You know, how can we make this benefit us? I don't know if you saw, um, there was an article in the news not too long ago about Caitlyn Jenner. Mm -hmm. She sold her private airstrip. Like, I guess there's this place that you have a house and there's, you have your own private airstrip. Like, I guess how people have boat docks. Mm -hmm. And I believe it's on the way to this place, or maybe it's right near there, but she got a lot of criticism for this. Uh, She said she's selling it because of the homeless population in the area. Like it's a site. It's it's hard to look at. So she's getting rid of the house. So she doesn't have to look at them. No, I did not read that article. I want to say I was in Yahoo maybe a month or two ago. I just I don't know. I read that. I was like, I don't understand. So if you see people and this is hard for you to look at because it's sad, wouldn't you want to help out in some way? Like maybe donate to a soup kitchen or something. Yeah. Caitlin, Caitlin Jenner. Is she like the model of the family? Um, no, that's Chris Jenner. Chris Jenner and Caitlin Jenner were married. Uh- Oh, okay, okay, okay. Sorry, I'm not in loop with the whole like Kardashian click. I know who they are, but yeah. it, it still confuses me of who's who with them. Yes, I know. Oh, okay, Caitlyn Jenner used to have another name, but I know a lot of people cash a lot of flack for releasing the dead name. So I'm just not going to do that here. I know exactly who you're talking about. Yeah. Yes, uh, yeah, especially with somebody like that, though. Like, help. Like, why are you like do something about it then? Like, right. if it. If it bothered you to see that, then be proactive and be helpful and do and something was, about yeah, it. This was one of her houses that has an airplane hanger on it. You know, if you if you can afford a private jet, maybe you could afford to help feed, clothe, you know, do something nice mm-hmm. to homeless people. I don't know. Just a thought. Yeah, a good thought at that. So the other option for a poor person, a pauper could go to the overseer of the poor and ask for relief. And in some cases, the overseer would give them clothing, food, and firewood that was paid for by the town. Mm -hmm. So I don't know, this seems kind of subjective because the overseer could make the decision over who they're going to help or not just based on either how they're feeling that day, if they like that person, if they know that person, um, there, you know, there's no government regulation. It's not like, show me your pay stubs and then I'll decide. It's just the overseer of the poor would make this decision. Right. And I think it's safe to say that it probably was not done fairly. So these poor farms uh they were very similar to poor houses except that they were in rural settings as opposed to urban cities and instead of inmates performing labor they would do farm work instead get ready for this poor houses and poor farms were around until the 1970s oh wow right (laughs) right most of them What's that? I, I just don't understand. Like, how did we not know about this? I know. I know. I know. That was like 16, 17 years before we were born. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. The 1970s. Like, it's not that long ago. Our parents were alive during this time. Yeah. So most of these, though, they disappeared after the Great Depression. So I think it was after the depression. That's when they started to decline. Um, the, after the depression, the federal government started more social welfare programs. And then throughout the 1930s and 1940s, most of the poor houses and poor farms started shuttering the doors. Mm-hmm. People with disabilities were during this time sent to like pulled out of the poor, poor houses and poor farms, and they were sent 
to lunatic and insane asylums, or maybe even institutions that cared for the feeble-minded. This is what they're called. Feeble-minded. It sounds insulting. It, it really does. So on November 23rd, 1908, in Spring City, Pennsylvania, which is in Chester County, a smidge north of Philly, Pennhurst State School and Hospital officially opened its doors. All right. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah, I was just about to say that. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> but at this time, okay, so it's called Eastern Pennsylvania State Institution for the Feeble-Minded and Epileptic. And epileptic. So, and I had to research this just to make sure I say this correctly, but epilepsy is a disorder in which nerve cell activity in the brain is disturbed and it causes seizures. Mm -hmm. So people that have epilepsy were sent to Pennhurst with those that were considered feeble-minded. Did they, do you know if they knew back then what exactly it was? I don't think they knew uh, just because this was part of their, you know, the people that they had to hide from the public. Like, you know, Mm -hmm. nobody can know that people like this exist. Eventually, I know Pennhurst stopped accepting patients who had epilepsy, um, but I don't know. Like now there's medications for it. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. Like now people that have epilepsy take a pill and then they don't have seizures. And just for the record, I actually had a professor that had a type of epilepsy where he would have seizures. Now he was standing. Some of them like, you know, you've, you will drop to the floor, but Mm -hmm he'd be standing during this math class and have a seizure like multiple times during class. Could you, were they like noticeable? Could you tell? Yes. And he did not, I don't, not that we need to be warned, but I guess made anyone, he didn't make anyone aware of it. Mm -hmm. And I was really concerned. And, uh, you know, another professor said that you know he has this disorder but he doesn't talk about it but you know he's fine he just will have these like little maybe 10 second seizures you know throughout class and (coughs) like all the other students and I I mean it didn't you know it didn't he was a great professor it didn't detract from that at all right and the fact that and like this guy was genius absolutely brilliant I can't imagine him being sent to a, like a state school, an institution, you know, like, I don't know, not that, but it seems like, like his talent would have been wasted. He was really, really, really intelligent. I learned so much from him. He was a great professor and, you know, a hundred years ago, he would have been placed in a, a home, you know, because he had something that he couldn't control. He was on medication for it. And you know, he have these little, like, I guess, like mini seizures, but they only lasted a couple seconds during class. Yeah, we definitely have come a long way yeah. when it comes to stuff like that. Yep. So this is early 1900s. Um, this, there's this guy, this uh, Dr. Thomas Story Kirkbride. He was inspired by moral treatment. This was a theory that was popularized in France and England in the 1700s. I wish they would have, you know, stuck with this moral treatment theory, but moral treatment involves treating people with dignity, placing an emphasis on mentally, mental well-being, and overall just allowing people to live respectful lives despite whatever setbacks they are experiencing. So yeah this dr kirkbride was actually the director of the institute of the pennsylvania hospital in philly back in the 1840s so what he was doing he had a building model uh that had 
categorized wings and was set in rural locations surrounded by farms and gardens. He believed that, you know, housing people in an urban urban area was detrimental to mental health and well-being. And his patients had a purpose. They worked in the gardens, the farms, the workshops. Uh, he had the food grown that was on the farm could be used in the kitchens. Classes were taught in the workshops. Materials were made by hand on site. So he had this moral treatment theory. Well, he borrowed it, I guess, from France and England and just ran with it. <clears throat> but this stopped in the 1900s because of funding. Uh, yeah, state legislators decided that the cost of running moral treatment hospitals was more than they wanted to spend. Therefore, it wasn't in the budget anymore. Well, that right there shows you that they really don't give a crap yeah. about right. them. So their new method uh, was to cure everyone. They were going to cure Down syndrome. They just, they didn't want to focus on well-being and mental health. It cost too much. They needed cures. They needed effective treatment. We need to get rid of this. They did hydrotherapy, um, electroshock therapy, eugenics. Uh, do you know what eugenics is? Have you heard of that before? I was, nope. I was just about to ask. So this was actually a really hot topic of conversation between doctors. Uh, they would be able to decide who was fit for parenthood and who should be sterilized. And even if it was against that person's will, uh, they'd make it. So they were able to, so they were unable to procreate. Oh, wow. Yep. Um, the bottomies came walking into the picture in the 40s and 50s. Doctors would drive a stake through or an ice pick through the corner of someone's eyeball to cut connections within the brain uh, to result or to reduce mania and other highly disturbing behaviors. I've heard of those. Yep. Ugh. Yep. So wow. Ugh. Penhurst, Penhurst, Penhurst. Uh, when it first opened, it was only 112 acres. This was back in 1908. However, when it closed back in 1989, it was 1,400 acres. So it grew a lot. Yeah. Yeah. So do you ever see those signs that say like Penhurst Asylum? Yeah. Or like they'll call it the insane asylum. Mm hmm. One of the biggest misconceptions is that Penhurst was an insane asylum. It was just, a, in all actuality, an institution to help families who had members with different intellectual disabilities. It was a school and a hospital. I did. The, I honestly thought it was like an insane asylum. That's what mm -hmm. I always called it. Oh, wow. Yeah. I did yeah. not know that. Yeah. So... It didn't take long when Penhurst opened, it do opened its doors on November 23rd, 1908, until it was completely overpopulated and understaffed. Definitely see a trend in education with this, you know? Mm -hmm. So people with disabilities, aged paupers, and other deviant groups uh, were sent to Penhurst. Um, yeah. Now, what does, like, what classifies as, like, a deviant group? Because, like, to me, that sounds like um, disciplinary, like, yeah. people who need to be disciplined. Yeah, um, I don't know. I, I think people, maybe they thought, you know, if they had any kind of mental illness, they were considered deviants or social deviants. I don't know. Huh. Um. And this was like the early 1900s and people thought Penhurst was a model institution. Uh, this institutional theory was labeled as being part of the progressive era because people thought what they were doing was really progressive and great. They just kind of wanted to gather everyone together, get them into the country, hide them from the public, sterilize them, they can't reproduce. And that's a great solution to the problem. And that's how these people were viewed as a problem. Their words, not mine. 
They, <sighs> yep. I think it was just like an easy out, you know? Oh, absolutely. Um, so at Penhurst, uh, many of the people that work there, they really, really were good people. Uh, they cared for the patients. They volunteered to care for them. You know, even when budgets didn't allow overtime or staff, they took patients to their homes for the holidays so they wouldn't be alone after their families abandoned them. They cared Aww. deeply about the patients. But there's only so much that they could do because of what they were up against. Right. Uh, just like in any, any job, anything, there were good people, but there were also some bad people. This was a really heartbreaking story. So this guy, Roland Johnson, he's a former Penhurst patient. He was institutionalized in the 1950s at Penhurst for a little more than a decade. What he, was he in for? Uh, so he had intellectual, they call, now it's called an intellectual disability, but mm -hmm. Back then, I believe it would have been called mental retardation. Okay. And it's odd. I get, I don't know. It's odd now. But again, considering the time. So Penhurst would have different wards because uh, if you look at the pictures of Penhurst, I don't know what there is, like 20 or 30 buildings. Like it's huge. Mm -hmm. So one of the buildings would be that for like... I feel even terrible saying this, but the labels these people would have would be idiot, imbecile, or like mentally retarded. Oh, wow. Yeah. And this wasn't, or I don't know if it was a jab at them. I mean, I think this was just the labeling system that was used. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? Yeah. Like now we wouldn't dream of saying that to someone or using that as a label. It's so offensive. Right. Uh, so I think when, I guess, probably pre or yeah, pre-ultrasound days, when people would have a baby and they'd have a known or like visible physical deformity, they'd just drop them off at Penhurst. Oh, that's sad to think about. Yeah. And some people were just completely and totally abandoned. Uh, they had no records of the family or else when Penhurst would call the family, they wouldn't answer the phone, the line would be disconnected. Like they were just forgotten. That's sad, that's really sad. Yeah, so Roland, uh, the schools in Philly wouldn't allow him because they, like his parents or his mom, I know for sure he lived with, uh, she took him to all these schools and they said well he can't come here we don't have program available we don't have any programs available for him now that's not even an option you can't say that to people mm -hmm. uh his behaviors became increasingly more violent so he'd eat everything in the house he'd steal food to feed his insatiable appetite uh he was one of nine children oh here it is it is both his parents so his parents reached their breaking point when he was 13, and in 1958, they made the incredibly difficult decision to put him in Penhurst. There is a, I don't know if it's a disease or disorder, that does go along with an intellectual disability. I cannot remember what it's called right now, but it is uh, like you do have an insatiable appetite, like you eat everything in sight. I'm going to have to look that up. I never heard of anything like that before. I want to say it's called the Prader-Willi syndrome. I just mm -hmm. want to double check. I'm not, let me Google this quick. I'm not a thousand percent sure. Prader-Willi syndrome. So it's uh, behavioral problems, intellectual disabilities, and short stature. Here it is. Yeah. Hormonal symptoms include delayed puberty, and constant hunger leading to obesity. Hey, wow. Me for the win. I can't believe I remember that. I learned about that in school. Yeah? Yeah. A bajillion years ago. Huh. Yeah, but people who have this Prader-Willi syndrome 
the families, like they often chain the refrigerator doors and cabinets shut so they can't eat because what would, would happen is, unfortunately, the people with the disease disorder, they'd eat the entire house by morning. Like they'd just stay up late and eat everything from the refrigerator. Oh, wow. Yeah. So not just like, oh, at the munchies, I'm really hungry. I mean, full on ate the entire fridge. Wow. Every- so these people weren't chaining like the refrigerator shut to be, you know, like dickheads, like they legit right. had to, like, what else can you do? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So he was one of nine children. And again, which is already yeah. a lot of food right, right there. And he wouldn't even like, he couldn't even, he couldn't go to school. Like, you know, there's no mental stimulation. Mm-hmm. Um, so he was sent to Pennhurst when he was 13 years old. He was released from Pennhurst 13 years later in the year of 1971 at the age of 26. At this point, he went on to speak out against institutions, advocate for people with disabilities, and with help, he wrote a book called Lost in a Desert World. So that just shows you what he's capable of. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Obviously, he's a smart man. Yep. So in the 80s, he joined an organization called Speaking for Ourselves, and he later became the president of the Philadelphia chapter. He spoke out for people with disabilities and was even given the opportunity to present President George Bush an award to, rec- yeah, to recognize him for enacting the Americans with Disabilities Act of 1990. Wow. Met, met the president. Yep. That's really awesome. And this him. Yeah. Um, but this, you know, it's sad. He ended up, he passed away in a house fire at the age of 48 in 1994. Hmm. So Roland's book and the account of the horrors he experienced at Pennhurst, uh, just hold on to your seat because it's, it's rough. Uh, the atrocities he endured are astounded sexual assault, physical assault, and then bullying to keep quiet. Uh, He was, yeah, he was called names by other high functioning patients, such as idiot, retard, dummy, and stupid. The patients would get into massive fights that required sutures. Uh, Roland remembers the numerous times he got sutures and he didn't have any coping skills. So when he was made fun of, he'd flip out, punch windows, punch walls, you know, he'd freak out. Right. Mm -hmm. So this would lead to him being placed in what they called the punishment ward. And he'd be forced to clean urine and feces out of the cribs in the bathrooms. (sighs) Yep. The punishment ward was unkept dirty. The walls were crumbling and infested with rats and roaches. Oh, Mm -hmm. the patients would pull the tiles off the floor and the walls and eat them until they were restrained. And then this is crazy. So some people would be restrained for over 600 hours a month. What? Yeah. So if you're anything like me, I'm like, all right, 24 hours a day. Well, how many days is 600 hours a month? You know, Mm -hmm. what did it break down to? Well, when you take 600 and divide it by 24, it is 25. So people were placed in restraints for 25 days or more a month. Oh my God. Yes. That is horrible. Yes. Yep. So the families that would send their children to Pennhurst and they kept in contact with them. Mm Mm-hmm. They noted what they described as maladaptive behaviors. So these are negative behaviors. Some of these people only started these maladaptive behaviors after being placed at Pennhurst. So there was an aggression or a regression in behaviors in addition to even worse behaviors. 
people would go to Pennhurst having basic skills, such as being completely potty trained. And then when they were placed at Pennhurst, they ended up losing those skills. Potty training, like it's insane. How young were these people going in there? Like what was the youngest? They were babies all the way up to like 80 years old. They had, (sighs) you know, when they talked about cribs. Yeah, I didn't. Yeah. They were like full grown adults that were in cribs chained to them. Oh my God. Yeah. So when they talk about this kind of stuff, you don't necessarily know like what we're talking, you know what I mean? Like there was a children's ward. I mean, there were adults. Um, so he was there from the time he was 13 till he was 26. So I would. Did his family keep in contact with him? They did. They did. I don't think they not, they knew what was going on. Uh, until like, because Pennhurst would do such a, I don't know, like they were shady. You know, they didn't, Mm -hmm. he would be bullied into quietness. Uh, They may not have even known, they may have known and just didn't report it. Uh, He could, he had hospital visits and, you know, nobody followed up with the family. Oh, that's so sad to think about. I can definitely see though, like the patient's not saying anything to their family because if they're being bullied like Mm -hmm. at the end of the visit the parents go away and they're back with the people in charge yeah it's not like who can essentially do anything that they want with them so I can definitely see them being scared to say anything yeah 100 percent 100 percent but there was this guy named Shorty McVeigh he took Roland under his wing and he cared for him. And Shorty McVeigh was an orderly um, or an attendant, depending on where you get your research. So Shorty would take Roland to his house. It was really close to Penhurst. He'd show him his garden. He coached and counseled Roland on how to control his anger and deal with his frustrations. Uh, Shorty and another orderly would consistently have Roland as their helper when they'd navigate the buildings, they do chores. You know, Shorty was the blessing that he needed. Go Shorty. Right? Champion, supporter. Mm-hmm. He's a really cool guy. Um, he has since passed away though. So Roland in his book and I guess in the speaking tours he did he was actually raped by other patients um he was consistently in the medical section or in the medical building for sexually transmitted diseases such as gonorrhea and syphilis oh god yep and then after he was released from penhurst he actually learned he was hiv positive oh wow yep um so roland spoke of another resident named eddie t who continually raped him Mm-hmm. Eddie also raped a crippled girl who was wheelchair bound and he broke her hip. Oh my God, I'm going to be sick. That's yeah. so gross. Yep. He was sent to jail for that. Um, the sexual assault first started at night when the attendants were off, not supervising the floors. Uh, Roland would be beat up, hit, scratched, bitten, and attacked by other patients. Um, He witnessed a fight that led to a patient being pushed out of a window. He witnessed staff beating patients with keys and batons. And then this one, his friend was murdered. Uh, He was found with a rope around his neck, was sexually abused, hands tied behind his back, feet tied up, and a gag in his mouth. Uh, The man was dead for over 24 hours, and the nurse said she smelled something funny and explored the punishment ward and found this deceased man. Yeah. So do we think that the workers did it? Honestly, I don't know. I don't know. Wow. Uh, After the death, though, there was a huge investigation, but nothing turned up. But yeah. 
It's gruesome. Uh, when Roland witnessed a patient being pushed out the window, he gave this paraphrased account. And I only paraphrased it uh, because the author that interviewed him kind of wrote it verbatim. So I just kind of cleaned it up a little bit. Mm-hmm. But uh, this was what Roland said. The afternoon shift was three to 11. And at, th- and at shift change, the attendants were busy. And that was when one patient ran up and pushed another out the window. Thank goodness he lived. We all thought he died, but he only broke his leg and his hip. Wow. Yeah. So Roland visited the dentist at Penhurst often, uh, especially to fix the cavities and cracked teeth. His tooth cracked when another patient flipped out and flung a stool and it ended up hitting Roland in the face and cracking his tooth. Mm. Many of the accounts, many of the accounts about Penhurst include people having cracked teeth or having their teeth removed entirely. Some teeth were removed for normal dental reasons, but others were removed because patients bit other people. Roland gave the account of the lice spray that was sprayed on the patients in the shower. Um, he said it burned terribly, especially when they sprayed his penis, but he had to leave it there or else he would be punished for rinsing it off. Oh, gosh. Right? Horrible. Like, this guy has been through it. hmm And he was super high-functioning. So imagine what the people that, like, the more low-functioning that couldn't talk about what was happening to them, imagine what they went through. I know. And so when we went on a tour of Penhurst back in early May, when we did our tour there, I remember the tour guide was saying that, uh, you know, all the stories about people having their teeth ripped out, they were not true. She's like our age, but obviously this guy who shared his account and lived there, I don't think he'd make it up, you know? Right. Yeah. So Roland's first job at Penhurst was to work with what they were labeled as uh, low grades and babies. Mm-hmm. Actually, here it is. There were not babies as in children that were two or less years old uh, at Penhurst. So they were at least two when they went there. Um, okay. These were older people who couldn't care for themselves. But every patient at Penhurst was called a child. Oh, that's very yeah bel- belittling. Like. Yeah. So the children was the term used rather than patients, even though some of these people were adults. Wow. So uh, the low grade and the baby ward, uh, these people would urinate themselves and would drip onto the floors and Roland would clean it up. Uh, They would defecate themselves and Roland stated, I would get into the showers with them to clean them up because somebody had to do it. I felt real sorry for them. They couldn't help it. It's not like they wanted to do that. Aww. I know. He was so sweet. So he said, uh, whatever they needed me to do, I did. When they were short-staffed, I'd help out. I fed babies. I worked in the hospital ward. Um, They had these babies with huge head. One guy had a huge head and he couldn't move. So I had to turn him on his side so he wouldn't get sores on his back. I changed diapers, changed sheets, and fed people that couldn't feed themselves. Some people couldn't even sit up, so it was really difficult to feed them with a spoon while they were laying down. I know. Uh, Roland witnessed a patient be so severely burned by bathtub water because the staff never checked the temperature that this person was hospitalized in the medical building. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Oh, that gave me the chills. Yep. Uh, so Roland worked in what was called the low grade ward, uh, meaning this is where people with low mobility were kept in cribs, often by restraints. My dogs. So it smelled like feces. There would be feces and urine all over the floors and there were ratchet roaches and rats crawling everywhere. Flies would be all over the residence before succumbing to their deaths. Flies would be all over the residents before succumbing to the death to their deaths. On, <laughs> you hear? <laughs> right. There. Yeah. 
Flies would be all over the residents before succumbing to their deaths on fly traps strung above the patient's beds and never replaced. Oh, God. That's so gross. Yeah. These poor people. Yeah. Uh, Roland recalls some staff members threatening him and other residents uh, that if they ever told their families what happened, that nobody will believe them and they'd later be severely punished. Hmm. Which, you know, that's no surprise there. Right. Uh, <clears throat> on January 2nd, 1937, Eugene Statler, a 15-year-old, died of a brain hemorrhage and shock. He had been a patient at Penhurst for six years. He was being questioned by an orderly named William McGraw, who was 24 years old, uh, because he stole 95 cents. Four other residents saw McGraw force boxing gloves onto Statler for punishment. Then McGraw slammed his head against the wall numerous times. McGraw claims he was interrogating Statler, then received a phone call so he could step away. And when he returned, he found him unresponsive on the floor. McGraw was held for manslaughter charges. Oh, wow. Mm Mm-hmm. Um... Then later, during a trial of a former Penhurst patient versus Penhurst, the following information was brought to light. The district court also found that the environment at Penhurst is not merely inconsistent with normalization principles, but is actually hazardous to residents. Because of the inadequacies in programming attributable to staff shortages, residents were found to have lost skills they had already learned. Organized programs of appropriate education and training were found to be inadequate or unavailable. Evaluations of resident progress do not meet minimum professional standards, and record keeping is inadequate. Moreover, the Penhurst environment was found to be unsanitary. There is often urine and excrement on the ward floors. Infectious diseases are common. Obnoxious odors and excessive noise permeate the institution. Most toilet areas do not have towels, soap, or toilet paper. Injuries to residents by other residents or through self-abuse are extremely common. Serious injuries inflicted by staff members, including sexual assault, have occurred. Physical restraints, which may be physically harmful and which have caused injuries and at least one death, are resorted to more frequently than appropriate than appropriate because of shortages of staff. Dangerous psychotropic drugs are used for purposes of behavior control and staff convenience, rather than for legitimate treatment needs. Such drug misuse produces lethargy, hypersensitivity to sunlight, inability to maintain gait, and other disabilities. Seclusion and solitary confinement has been used to punish aggressive behavior, which might not have occurred if a proper regimen of training were available. Diet control is not possible because residents dine in large group eating areas without staff supervision. Boom. Wow. So this is, it's like everybody is starting to learn a little more about this. Mm-hmm. Um. Penhurst actually sought to expand the campus and create an all-girls campus. The idea was to separate them so they couldn't reproduce. Dr. Henry Goddard was Penhurst's uh, chief physician, and he was a eugenist. This is a direct quote from him. Every feeble-minded person is a potential criminal. The general public although more convinced today than ever before that it is a good thing to segregate the idiot or distinct imbecile, they have not as yet been convinced as to proper treatment of the defective delinquent, which is the brighter and more dangerous individual. It is now generally understood that feeble-mindedness is in the great majority of instances the direct result of hereditary transmission of mental defect. It is also known that the feeble-minded female is very likely to bear children, and these children are most certain to be defective or in some way permanently dependent. The the feeble-minded girl 
is more of a menace to society than the boy. Stats show that feeble-minded girls and boys marry, out, marry in ratios of three to one. It would seem, therefore, that if the state is not adequately equipped to care for all the feeble-minded, the feeble-minded girl should have institutional care in preference to the boy since she is the greater menace. And what was his name again? Henry H. God. Oh, Dr. Henry H. Goddard. Henry H. Goddard can go F himself. Right? He sounds like an idiot. Yeah. Yep. 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 So then in 1968, there was a documentary that came out called Suffer the Little Children. A uh, reporter from Philly named Bill Baldini did a six-part expose. He detailed the inhumane conditions, abuse, neglect, and failings of the state in regards to Pennhurst and the innocent lives that called it home. It was not the first expose done on Pennhurst. However, it was the first one that showed regular people the horrors of Pennhurst, and it was broadcasted all over the news. Later, after his expose was released, Pennhurst <laughs> would be called the shame of Pennsylvania. I was just about to ask, was there like an outrage? Were people pissed off about this? Yeah, he actually, Baldini was so mentally exhausted from this investigation. Uh, he had to have another reporter fill in at one point. The film crew was so emotionally unstable following their departure. They said they'd go home and just cry. Uh, Baldini oh, wow. said he couldn't even talk about the poor conditions without bursting into tears. And he said every single thing about Penhurst was completely heartbreaking. He and his crew saw people lying in their own excrement for five days at a time. Oh, gosh. He later interviewed a guy named Dr. Jesse Fear, as in F-E-A-R, right? Dr. Fear. Mm -hmm. Coincidentally, Dr. Fear told him that residents would be punished by being downgraded and offending their dignity. So they would be placed into wards with the severely mentally disabled. When he wanted, he also said that when he ever, when he wanted to punish residents, he'd give them a really painful injection. Didn't cause any damage, only caused extreme pain. This was like a doctor. And he gave this interview to a newscast, like, Proud he was of proud of himself. Yeah, yeah, yep. Um, so at one point, the superintendent who ran the campus had requested all kinds of money for help. Uh, the order kept getting sent back. It was for bras for the residents. Like that's what the state was denying. Bras bras for the female residents wow and in that bill baldini expose i think it was something like they figured like the philadelphia zoo spent seven dollars a day to feed their animals and take care of them and penhurst spent something like two or three dollars a day to take care of their human beings that were there oh wow yeah so now we're getting into penhurst uh, their final days um Halderman versus Penhurst happened in 1977, and they said it was unconstitutional to force people with disabilities into institutions. The judge went on to say that Penhurst provided such a dangerous, miserable environment for its residents that many of them actually suffered physical deterioration and intellectual regression during their stay at the institution. In there, this Halderman versus Penhurst, her name was Terry Lee Halderman. Her parents filed a class action lawsuit against Penhurst. Uh, they were furious. Terry had over 40 injuries, including cracked teeth, a broken jaw, and fractured fingers. These were what they called common injuries at Penhurst. How long did they keep her in there for? Um, I don't know. Because you would think, like me as a parent, if I had to send my kids oh. somewhere. I found it here. She was uh -huh. there for 10 years. So I, 
here's what happened. She went into Penhurst able to speak and communicate. And then she went completely silent. So she wasn't talking for 10 years. She never spoke out about abuse, rape. She, yeah, she was raped and physically abused. She just stopped talking. Her parents didn't find that weird. Like to me, that would be a huge red flag. I agree. But I think what was happening was you'd have these doctors like, oh, this is normal. It's a loud environment. None of our patients, you know, many of them stop talking for a little and then we'll start again. Or, you know what I mean? Like they made excuses. Yeah, I guess. I just, I can't imagine like yeah. oh, 10 years. Yeah. So then there's this story about Nicholas Romeo, his parents, Frank and Paula, um, so when he was born like he could not roll over he couldn't swallow he sat up late he couldn't hold his head up on his own so the doctor said back in 1948 um that he was i guess because he was in an incubator um they said he's going to be a vegetable for his life uh and they said just put him in put him in an institution and forget about him this is what the doctor said. Oh my God. Yeah. He had an enzyme deficiency called PKU. It stands for phenyl ketonuria. I don't know if I'm mm-hmm. saying that right. Ketonuria. Um, with early detection and a specialized diet, this mental disability can actually be prevented in children. But unfortunately, this diagnosis came too late for Nick. Um, his parents did everything they could to help him. Then in 1974, uh, Paula and Nick went to the store and when they came home, they found Frank, the dad clutching his chest dead on the floor. Nick freaked out. He was growing more and more disheveled. Then he started indulging in self-injurious behaviors. You know, he'd bite himself. He'd break things. He'd scream. He'd bash his head into the wall. Um, Mm. He would scream all hours of the night, like just for hours on end. Just scream for no reason. I think because he was grieving for the loss of his dad. Oh, okay. Um, Because he was fine. uh, But then after his dad died, you know, his mom was so desperate. She ends up taking him there. He, well, she took him to the Pennsylvania hospital. He was restrained for 21 days. the doctors told her his IQ was nine and he had profound mental retardation. So on June 12th, 1974, Nick arrived at Penhurst in an ambulance. Um, 2000 residents were there at the time and Nick was given the number 10,434. His mom said that his curly, beautiful brown hair was shaved. His new home was building called unit seven and he entered it kicking, screaming, and fighting. He had 77 injuries in his first two years at Penhurst and 200 total in the nine years he lived there until he left on April 5th, 1983. Oh gosh. Yeah. Um, When this article was printed about Nick in May 27th, 1984, it was noted that nine residents drowned in the Schuylkill River while they were patients at Penhurst. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, In Nick's first five days at Penhurst, he was evaluated. The psychiatrist said that he was extremely disturbed. Um, Among his problems were hand-watching, hitting his head, scratching others, and inappropriate laughing. Um, his mom was not allowed to see him while he was there for the first couple of weeks. When she did go, uh, three weeks later, it was September 15th. She noticed cuts above his eye. Uh, the staff said, well, he did that to himself. He hit himself. Then he fell down. Then they would tell her that, you know, he was less abusive. He'd give AIDS, uh, kisses on the cheek but then he would hit them after they turned their back. Um, on October 5th that year, he ran away after lunch was found lying outside in the sun. Um, he 
was then moved to a small and homier environment. It was a new building called the New Horizon Building. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was there. There were six wards with 60 residents in each for a total of 360 residents in the one building. Uh, the people would spend their time in the day rooms, which were large glassed in rooms with plastic furniture, televisions, and linoleum floors. But there was nothing for them to do. There were no games, no toys, nothing to keep them ment- mentally stimulated. They were forced to wander around the day room, engaging in self-soothing behaviors. Sometimes they were naked. The behaviors were hitting, biting themselves, rocking, and making noises. Well, I feel like anybody in a situation where they're stuck in four walls and don't have anything to do I mean I feel like a lot of us have experienced that within the last two years like it's enough to drive you crazy and we have tvs and we have computers and we have our cell phones and we have games and yeah yeah I can only imagine well and uh, poor like I don't know this Nick Romeo he just was beaten into submission you know he went from living like a really busy life with his parents like doing stuff to not having anything to do yeah you know you can of course he's gonna have these like bad behaviors Mm -hmm. um in June of 1976 Nick was injured 12 different times um his mom was so distraught, she actually reached out to community legal aid and met with an attorney. Pennhurst officials came in to this meeting with a list of 63 injuries, and they acted like it was just the norm. Nick's nose was fractured. Um, uh, another person or a person left an anonymous tip, like an aide that said they saw another aide beating Nick in the face with his fist while Nick was lying on the bathroom door and the aide was on top of him. Um, After an internal investigation was conducted, there was no evidence of abuse found. Of course there wasn't. Right. So his mother, like she said, she ended up getting the attorney involved because she would do these surprise visits, like she'd sneak into the buildings. Mm-hmm. She noticed that like the people, the residents of Penhurst were kept in this small area, like those day rooms, they were behind glass in- enclosures. You know, they were kind of kept like zoo animals. The aides would be on the other side of the building, like with their feet propped up. Oh. Yeah. So Nick had his right arm was fractured. He had infected knees. He was tied up and bound by restraints. Like this poor guy, you know? Yeah. Then they believed, well, he was restrained. His mother filed a lawsuit. And shortly after that, he was in the infirmary for four years and spent more than 7,000 hours restrained. Oh gosh. So after this, the mother like they had this expert testify that they didn't think Nick was aggressive. Like they said, he was actually really kind. When they did this test, uh, they'd have a patient who had annoying behaviors, like doing things to annoy Nick. Nick would actually just turn and walk away. So he showed no aggressive behaviors. Mm -hmm. His last month Like, because this ended up going on, there was like testimony, the whole process took two and a half years when Nick was in, like restrained in the infirmary. So the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Third Circuit actually awarded, I guess, like a win for Nick's mom um, to get Penhurst shut down. Nick continued to have cuts and bruises. Nick was found to have a bruised penis. Yeah. So this went all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court, and they said that Nick had a right to reasonably safe conditions of confinement, a right to be free of unnecessary restraint, and a right to treatment. Nick's attorney had won new rights, not only for Nick, but for all institutionalized, mentally retarded people in the United States. That's a direct quote. 
good for Nick's mom, though, for getting like involved and doing what she had to do. Yep. So then in March of 1983, nine months after the Supreme Court ruling, a doctor had a Pennhurst security officer go to Nick's cottage. She wanted him to inspect marks that were believed to be a direct result of abuse. Nick had 50 marks on his back, chest, and buttocks. They stuck out like black, red, and blue outlines of the same toilet brush that was in his bathrooms. These were not the most severe that Nick had, but they were the most disturbing. This was the one-on-one aid that he had. He had wounds on him that only could have been given by the night staff member, Penhurst. He was scheduled to be transferred. The injuries couldn't have been on, you know, because of him, even though they were blamed on him. Mm -hmm. And they couldn't have been from the other residents because everyone was sleeping. The staff morale was described as being at an all-time low, and many employees blamed Nick's lawsuit as the culprit. Employees felt like Paula, his mom, wanted financial gain at the expense of their reputation and jobs. And they were annoyed that decisions were made about how they should be doing their jobs by his mother. So they were enraged. They were bitter. When Nick and his aide would walk past, they'd yell, here comes Mrs. Romeo's million dollar baby. One of the aides later said there was so much animosity towards him. It was unbelievable. It got to the point that I wouldn't let anyone near him. Although he had a one-on-one aide, he would still continue to be injured and staff would never report it so these staff members are mad because this mother is like i don't yeah i'm trying to put this into words and i can't it doesn't make any sense to me these staff members are mad because they now because they're they're, getting in trouble for yes for being dick bags yeah yeah Yes. Wow. Oh, that poor guy. That's horrible. Oh my God. And I, it's just insane. All those bruises that were on him. So mm-hmm. it was the aide uh, beating him with a toilet brush and an anonymous aide said, I think she did that. She cracked, she cracked and wanted to get her licks in before he left. After he did leave, she bragged about how she had done it. What an asshole. Yeah. So for Nick's last three days of staying at Pennhurst, he was on 24-hour watch by the Pennsylvania State Police. Wow. On April 5th, 1983, a police escort walked Nick out of Pennhurst. So in the next year, the negative behaviors dropped. He went from hitting himself and others 80 times an hour down to 12 times an hour. And his mom was really excited because... You know, the old son that she knew was back. Good for her again. Good for her for doing what she had to do. Yep. So at this point, like the staff knew the place was closing. This is like the mid 80s. Like they knew it was inevitable. Mm -hmm. State police ended up conducting undercover operations in mid 86. And there were 22 aides that were disciplined. Mm -hmm. Uh, The grand, a grand jury had indictments against them on charges of violating the civil rights of 21 residents. They were accused of punching, kicking, slapping, beating, and intimidating the residents. Wow. Yeah. So then in 1989, Pennhurst closed, or I'm sorry, 1987, pretty much due to the Halderman suit, which was Terry Lee, the little girl that stopped speaking when she went there. Well, or the woman that stopped speaking after being placed there. A&E, oh yeah. So now we're going to fast forward 2019. A&E Network aired the world's biggest ghost hunt. The, they were given two, two weeks inside Penhurst. This was pretty wild. Uh, they had Dr. Conroy who worked there, or I'm sorry, they had Jim Warner who was the operations man- manager. And they then had Dr. Jim Conroy, who was a doctor who was quite familiar with the hospital and wrote the report documenting the abuse in the 70s that shut it down in 1987. So they had Mm -hmm. been there during this. They went on to have full body apparitions 
they heard voices, they caught EVPs. The Mayflower building is one with a lot of paranormal activity. This was known as the punishment ward. Uh, that makes sense. Yeah. And then Quaker Hall is also one that has like so much activity because this was the low functioning ward where residents would be placed there as a humiliating punishment. Oh gosh. Uh, screams can be heard coming from that building. Multiple different ghost hunters have pulled EVPs from that building. Um, there was a medium who visited and said that a demonic force was in the building. Well, that doesn't surprise me. Yeah. There are numerous reports of people being hit, pushed, scratched, choked, and touched. Voices have been heard in all of the buildings. This is going to give you the chills. Apparitions of children have been seen on the playground. Oh, wow. Apparitions of nurses and patients have been seen all throughout the property. And then in 2010, uh, it turned into the Halloween theme attraction called Penhurst Asylum. Mm -hmm. I would say prior to that, kids would roam through the property. They'd often be chased off by police or caught and fined. Nobody is advised to break into the property. As of now, there are slots available. You can conduct your own personal ghost hunt. You can do a daytime history tour, or you could attend the Halloween-themed attraction. I would love to do like a personal tour. That would be really neat. Yes, because you and I never, ever, ever broke in there. Nope. Never. Ever. <laughs> Prior to 2010, when it was turned into a Halloween attraction, we were never there. <laughs> Not once. No. But never did any destructive stuff when we were hypothetically never there. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. No, we were just always very, very interested in it. Yeah. So that's the history of, again, one of the most haunted places in America. That is crazy. Do you know what happened with all the patients after they closed down? Yes, they actually, they were sent to what they call uh, community living centers, um, mm -hmm. kind of like a group home. Okay. That was a big thing throughout the 80s and it, like it's still present today. They have these group homes where people can uh, like live ordinary lives. They of course have, I think like, I don't know if they're nurses or people that go there to kind of keep tabs on them or drive them places if they can't drive. Um, mm -hmm. But they work, they live by themselves, they you know, do their own laundry and feed themselves and clean themselves. Um, you know, it's much more, I don't know, in, there's so much more independence. Um, it's not restraints and beatings and being treated like a baby called a child. You know, there's a lot more autonomy given. Yeah, well, good. That makes me happy. I remember hearing rumors that when Penhurst closed the doors that they just like let all the patients leave. But, just like walk free. Yes. And that was not true. Um, you know that, now that you said that, I feel like I heard that too. I kind of forgot about it though. Here, Jack. He's so loud. Um, but the other thing that I did find during the research is that some of the patients did end up wandering back to Penhurst after it had closed, but I think it was just, you know, they lived there for so long. That's where they thought they were supposed to be or belonged. Like they had a hard time adjusting to life outside of Penhurst. Right. I get that. That does make sense. But it, uh, I mean, just based on the horrific stuff that happened there, you can understand why it's one of the most haunted places ever, you know? Yeah. That's my 